the audience is basically saying to us, you've got to justify the experience of going out to the theater as a movie, as opposed to waiting a couple of months to watch it on Disney Plus or whatever. I think what the audience is basically telling us with their dollars is, if you build it, it being a really great superhero movie, we will, we will come out. Ladies and gentlemen, we have a treat for you here today. Uh, this is someone, uh, you know, I've kind of known a digital context for a little bit of time, uh, but I recently got to meet, uh, you know, Orzum, and uh, probably one of the most enjoyable conversations I've had in a long, long time. And I remember thinking during the uh, conversation, I was like, hey, I just wish I could have a version of this, you know, on our, on, show. On our show. We have the one and only Mark Guggenheim on the show. Mark um, has made many, many amazing TV shows and movies. All of you have seen, watched, loud, uh, multiple, multiple pieces of work, uh, both in uh, comic books, TV, and movie land. Mark, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me. Um, yeah, I have to tell you, like our conversation was, was so, it was so awesome. It's like, oh my God, I found my people. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it was just like, oh, this is like talking to a oh my friend. Oh gosh. Oh. But now we have the pressure to actually, you know, this performance, this episode now needs to match that energy, right? Like, you know, uh, uh, <laughs> there we go. You know, the, the, Tom Hanks once would say that, you know, he would talk to say, a Leno or uh, a Kimmel producer, I'd be great. He'd be like funny and they'd be like, oh my God, you should use that bit on the show tomorrow night. Then he comes to the show and it goes false flat. This is not going to be yeah. one of those. We're going yes. to make it yeah, I worry about that. I do worry about that. <laughs> I'm, I'm right there with you. Believe me, uh, I have so many, I'm so neurotic. I have all the work. So it's all good. I've got it all <laughs> uh, Okay, so maybe let's start off with this. Who are you? Talk to us about just your story and your body of work and because we have so many kind of ways we're going to uh, go from there. Who I am is is interesting because I think for the last 23 years, I've been living someone else's life. Like, I, I grew up uh, in New York on Long Island. I went to law school in Boston. I stayed in Boston, practiced law for five years. And I actually think the real me is still that guy back in Boston, you know, practicing law, working 90 hours a week and probably pretty miserable and stressed out. I don't know how I ended up in this situation, in this body. Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, it's weird. It's very, very weird. Uh, but I'm lucky because I get a chance to, I always say I work for a uh, 10-year-old me. Mm -hmm. um, you know, any, anything that I loved at 10 years old, I, I am been fortunate enough to get to work on in, in any medium, in, in comics and novels and mm -hmm. uh, TV and film. Um, I'm I'm incredibly fortunate. But that's, that's why, like, I was 29 when I moved out to L.A. and this is not me like the i still don't understand how this happened me is practicing law back in boston i swear <laughs> i my, my next novel is going to be about uh parallel universes it's it built in large part of this idea that i'm living this weird parallel universe version of my own life as strange as that sounds well well you know i you know i was thinking about a conversation and you know i was thinking because i remember being stuck like a lawyer turned, you know, maker of popular iconic TV shows and movies. Like, that's crazy. But I have a theory. I'm curious to kind of ask you about theory, which is if you look at law, right? Like, you basically have hundreds of year old frameworks. Mm -hmm. and, and then you have new things that come up every single day that push up against frameworks. Case law, constitution, et cetera, et cetera, right? And is there a similarity between that? And when you're writing, say, a comic book in 2023 or a TV show in 2023, 
They're like 70 years of canon, multiple universes, you know, what the fans expect, you know, how this has to tie in with the next movie coming out. But you got to make this thing fun and interesting and it's all. So do you think like your lawyerly training actually gave you a leg up? Well, it's fun. It's so funny you said that because like, I'll give you an example. So yesterday I had a comic book come out called X-Men Days to Future Past Doomsday, which is, is based on this iconic landmark two issue story called Days of Future Past mm-hmm. that made it into a movie uh, that's that big in absolute comics. But since that, you know, 30, that was published 30 years ago and in those 30 years, Marvel has published like this story and that story and this tie-in and it, hey, it takes place before, it takes place after, it takes place during. And I was, when I was working out the story, I kind of thought a lot about like case law mm-hmm. because yeah. the thing about, the thing about case law is you, you are supposed to cite, you know, your, your positions based upon actual cases. Mm-hmm. The problem is some of those cases are, you know, decades old. How do you know they haven't been changed or overruled by other, you know, by other courts or, you know, other lawyers or whatever. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm going to, it, it, it activated all those anxieties. I'm like, Twitter's going to be like the judge who realizes that I cited a a irrelevant or a out of date case, you know, all kidding aside. I, I actually say like a lot of my work as a showrunner, um, I, I didn't learn how to be a showrunner, not from working in television, though that was certainly helpful, but from being a lawyer, like mm-hmm. the skills I had, like thinking on my feet, writing really fast, making decisions, negotiating, thinking strategically, um, those, you know, managing people, mm-hmm. those are all skills I've learned as a litigator. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it's kind of funny, like I, you, you in your question, you sort of we're like, it's so weird to go from uh, a lawyer to be a writer. And here's the here's the dirty secret. It was kind of the only thing I could actually do. When when I when I first moved out to LA, uh, you know, it's funny. It's like there are two types of lawyers, right? There's litigators and transactions. Mm-hmm. Oh, I thought you were going to say good ones and bad ones, but okay, yes, I'll no, do well, that. That's fair too. <laughs> that's fair too. Um, and people always ask me what type of lawyer were you, and I'm like mediocre. <laughs> but. You know, if you're a transactional attorney, the world's your oyster. You can be a CEO, a CFO, you can CTO, you can do anything. But if you're a litigator, you, you encounter what I encountered when I moved out to LA. Because I was, I didn't know how long it would take me to get a job in Hollywood. So I was looking for a day job. Mm-hmm. The only thing I didn't want to do was be a lawyer again. So I would go, this is, you know, thousands. So like the tech boom is kind of going on, you know, internet 2.0 is happening. And I go to all these interviews and I like, I had a whole speech prepared about all these transferable skills I had, you know, and which I sort of just gave you. And they would listen to the speech and they would react with, yeah, but we don't want to sue anybody. I'm like, I don't want to sue anybody either. That's why I, why I'm here. Yes. Yeah, that's why I'm here. Uh, but like in many ways, I kind of joke that it was either litigation, go back to litigation or was be a writer. Being a writer was the only thing people would hire me to do. What was the the first comic book you remember reading that left an impression on you? Or maybe you want to go, I want to do this someday. The memory is actually so much earlier than that. Like one of my earliest memories as a kid was sitting on the floor of my room, mm-hmm. flipping through a Superman comic. Mm-hmm. And I, I specifically remember it was Superman. Um, and this is before I could read. And yeah. my mother came in the room. I didn't even know how I got the call. Yeah, she's grabbing, um, she's grabbing what we have. So uh, this is a gift that... Uh, oh, nice. Yeah. 
So no, uh, wait, this is number twenty. Uh, uh, it's original frame. As this is one of the best gifts I ever uh, got. Yeah, it's one of the the, the first versions. I think it's nineteen fifties. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And, and I love that. And it's super wow. saving. Uh, I think a uh, a bunch of like people from U uh, boat attack or so. You know, basically kind of like post World War Two. Yeah. Uh, Storylines, but uh, wow, yeah, Superman was definitely the origin for me. You know, like I'm like flipping through it, on, you know, and I'm just entranced. And my mother comes in the room and she thinks I'm reading. She thinks she has a savant on her hands. And I'm like, no, I'm just looking at the pictures. And that's like literally one of my earliest memories. And your your other question of like, when did it occur to me to do it? Yeah. To be honest with you, I never really thought that I could. Um, and like, I didn't even dare really to dream. Like back when I was in college, I interned at Marvel Comics mm. and I was trying like, I didn't think like I'd be a writer necessarily. I, I knew I was going to go to law school, but I did pitch some stories, none of which got published. But I, I wanted, I did want to do something in comics, but honestly, I didn't have the guts for it at the time. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the idea of like a career path, a very obvious profession trajectory of practicing law was was more appealing to me. Um, until it was, my wife and I, we had a dual bridal shower. And for our engagement and a friend of ours was like, why don't you write comics? By that point, I was already writing television. Mm. Um, and I'm like, because it's really hard. In fact, it's actually harder to break into comics as a writer than it is to break into Hollywood as a writer. Wow. Because, yeah, because with Hollywood, think of, think of Hollywood as like a freeway. And there's all these different on-ramps. You can get a job as a PA. You can get an agent. There's, you know, back when network television was a healthier industry, there was what's called television staffing season, this mm. period of April and May, where shows would basically staff up. So there were all these avenues. There's nothing like that for writers and comics at all. Um, there's there's no analog to it. If you're an artist, it's a lot easier. There's there's portfolio reviews, and you go to conventions and you show your artwork mm. to you know to to editors. But for a writer, you can't. It's not like you can go up and say, "Can you read my script?" Right. Um, so it's actually a lot harder. In fact. The, how the does whole, it work? Yeah, how does how do you get into writing in this case, in this world? Well, I'm the wrong person to ask. I always like to say I had to break in twice. Mm -hmm. At that bridal shower, this friend of ours who had asked why you don't write why I don't write comics, um, she was working with David Goyer at the time. Mm -hmm. And David Goyer was writing uh, a Justice Society comic, I think, for Peter Tomasi, mm -hmm. who was an editor at DC and he's gone on to be a very successful writer himself. And she's like, I have to check with David, but if it if it's okay with him, I'll connect you and Peter together. And Peter and I hit it off uh, immediately, and he bought a two-issue uh, uh, Aquaman story mm -hmm. from him. And that story, I have to tell you, so set the world on fire that absolutely nothing. Uh, the phone never rang. About <laughs> over a year later, a couple things had happened that that you know moved in my direction. Um, Joe Straczynski and Kevin Smith two Hollywood guys were suddenly writing comics. Right. They sort of opened up the path for Hollywood writers to come into to comics. So my manager at the time connected me up with someone at Marvel whose job it was to kind of be a little bit of a liaison mm. between Hollywood and, and comics. And he connected me up with Axel Alonso, who went on to become the editor-in-chief of Marvel. And Axel bought a Punisher story off of me, and that led to other right. work. And then suddenly the phone started ringing. So, you know... Imagine this whole period of time when you're writing, and by the way, your Wikipedia page, we're going through, we're like, okay, there's a lot of work there's in here, right? Here. Yeah. So imagine you're making the movie of your life, and there is a montage sequence 
of this time of you pouring over comic book scripts? Like, what does it montage sequence look like? What are the core beats of you working on these comics? What are you spending your time doing? You know, it's funny. I don't know if this exactly answers the question. I guess there are like two key bones. Um, the first is that to write the Aquaman story, I had my outline and everything, and I was working on a show called Jack and Bobby uh, at the time. And I was sitting in my office at Jack and Bobby, and I'm like, okay, got my outline, I'm ready to write. And I put my hands to the keyboard, and nothing happens. And I realized, oh my God, I just assumed I'm a writer, and I've been reading comics my whole life. Mm -hmm. This should be easy. And I suddenly realized I had no idea what the hell I was doing. Uh, even though I had read some comic book scripts at the time. And fortunately, Jack and Bobby was co-created by a very talented and wonderful person named Brad Meltzer. Mm. Brad uh, is a novelist. He's also written very important comic books like A Run in Justice League, mm -hmm. Identity Crisis. And I ran into Brad's office uh, to ask him, how do I do this? I don't know how to do this. And he, he gave me a very quick crash course. Do you remember any of the elements from that crash course or any bullet yeah. points that really surprised um, you? So, okay. So that story was during this period called Sub Diego, where um, basically San Diego had fallen to the bottom of the ocean. Hmm. It's comics. You got to go with it. And, it's, and more than that, the populace of San Diego, now called Sub Diego, was able to breathe underwater. I, I had this idea for a story um, that was sort of like a murder mystery uh, underwater. I remember things like I had to figure out how for people to communicate because like, not everyone could talk underwater. And I had someone spelling things out with a Scrabble board. Um, but like you have to make sure the Scrabble tiles don't float away. You know, the actual Aquaman movies or Aquaman's Jason Moore's character, they had to deal with the same issue. How do you yeah. with our... VFX budget shows yes. these people talking underwater. Yeah. Let's ignore maybe it changes from movie to movie. It's very, I mean, I, it's, yes, you're right. And it's very, it's challenging. You know, I think it's an interesting story yeah. problem, you know. If I were writing that story today, I'd probably do things a little bit differently. But I was really happy with the way the story turned out. You know, I thought it, it was really good. Uh, an artist, a British artist named Andrew Clark drew it. Um, and he did an amazing job. And uh, like I said, the phone never rang. So the, the second, I think, sort of seminal moment in the montage was that first Punisher story I had to turn in right before my honeymoon. Hmm. And I, I only just remember sitting at the keyboard, like furiously typing because I'm like, I, I can't, I can't bring the script with me to Italy. Um, <laughs> I, I not, not in and get the, you know, marriage off on the right foot. Fast forward a bit. Montage is also do that. They fast forward a bit, right? So, and you're now working in TV. How does the arrow, uh, green arrow, uh, come about, right? Like because we because in some ways that that's of all of your work, uh, that's probably the one which you know I think we've seen the most of and enjoyed, etc. Right? And we have so many questions. But how did the uh, how does the arrow come about? It came about because there was this Greg Berlanti and I. Greg Berlanti. I met Greg Berlanti on Jack and Bobby, and, mm -hmm. and he and I had done a show together called Eli Stone, and we co-wrote with Michael Green a Academy Award nominated beloved superhero film called Green Lantern. A highly oh, wow. underrated, highly underrated. And you know what? Can I make a prediction? Right? Sure. It is going to go down in 20 years as a cult classic. Right? It will be... I love that prediction. Yeah. I love that prediction. Uh, because, uh, I, you know, I think that... Uh, uh, and I already saw... You already see the elements of it, Right? You already see it popping up in all the Ryan Reynolds, yes. uh, Deadpool movies as references and other people referred to it. 
I think that it's going to be one of those things which come back. And uh, I also say, I'll never forget the scene, and we're going to have probably editor find this, when during the promotional tour, when the movie gets announced, Ryan Reynolds yes. at Comic-Con, a young kid asks him, and had from memory, he gives, you know, in Darkest Day, uh, and it is chilling, right? It is a chilling viral moment. I, I, re I remember that viscerally, um, and, and it was great. You know, basically what, what happened was Greg, Michael, and I were, were taken off the movie. Another writer was brought in, another director, Greg was going to direct it, another director was brought in, and, and we ended up with the movie that you saw. Um, but suffice it to say, the experience was not a great one for us. Yeah. Uh, the outcome was not a great one for us. And the movie actually came out basically the same week that Greg returned to Warner Brothers uh, on the TV side. And um, Peter Roth, the head of television at Warner Brothers at the time, said to him, like, I remember going to lunch with you and you had the most amazing idea for a Green Arrow TV show. I really wanted that to be the first thing you do. And Greg and I have been talking about doing it, you know, together. But then Green Lantern comes out and, you know, it, it bombs and, and, and we're sort of being excoriated uh, in all the reviews. And we're like, do we really want to do another superhero? Do we really want to do another DC superhero? Do we really, really want to do a DC superhero with Green in the name? Like, I mean, how... How 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 yeah. stupid are we? And, and by the way, cut to you know ten years later. Um, the answer is pretty stupid um, because we did end up doing it. The reason I mentioned Green Lantern is is that we eventually did do it, obviously. But Green Lantern taught us not that we don't know how to do these characters. We actually do. I always tell people like a simple Google search will surface our first draft, um, so you can read what we originally had in mind. But it taught us that if we're going to do these characters, we need total control. We, mm -hmm. we need to, to be able to see our vision through to completion. And we basically made these ridiculous lists of demands of both Warner Brothers and the CW. And they said, yeah, sure, uh, pretty much. Uh, and that's really how, how Arrow came about. It was, it was Greg's you know, vision. Um, you know, Greg saw very clearly you know the the flashback structure the island the um you know the the idea of oliver not as the quippy sort of uber liberal funny oliver queen of the comics but as someone who is more like brody from homeland mm -hmm. who sort of returns home after years of of basically physical and emotional torture um has has he been broken by that experience? Right. Mm. Um, uh, you know, Homeland was actually as big an influence on us uh, from the character of Brody to Oliver as any of the comics. Wow. No, wow. I had no idea. Because when with the comics, right, like Oliver is kind of like a Bruce Wayne character. Like, you know, he's a billionaire. He's a liberal. He has a goatee. He has some drinking issues, uh, if I remember at times. And um, But then I remember us watching the first episode of the arrow blew us away right blew us away uh, it had because in so many ways it had all the elements which set up the show yeah you got to meet all the characters it also had things that you have never seen before like the salmon ladder uh uh pull-up sequence yeah uh which because of that i started working out and I, okay, I still can't do that talk to us about you know like the making of the pilot uh, and the casting, uh, because so much could have gone wrong. Because you have a guy who shoots arrows in a city. How do you 
take yeah. it. Somebody takes it seriously. There is a younger sister. There's a memory. Issue. There's so many things happening in there. So we easily got, we we wait. We could, there are multiple other timelines where the show does not work. This is the time. Oh my God! I mean, tell me that. Like, you know, we were terrified, terrified. Um, and and the funny thing is, like, I was actually producing, I, I was producing Arrow, but at the same time, I was also producing another pilot that year for ABC. Mm-hmm. Um, no, for Fox. Sorry. Mm. So I was sort of running in between casting offices and production offices. Um, but I remember very vividly, um, we were casting Arrow out of Greg's offices at the time. And, uh, his his offices were sort of like there was a, like one big office for the presidents of, of his company, and there was a long hallway, and then Greg's office at the other end of the hallway. So we were casting out of the president's office, and Greg said, "You know, I'm going to go down the hall. I'm going to go. I got to go work. If you see anyone good, mm-hmm. um, bring me over." So the very first person to come in, very first audition. Forget about audition for Oliver. Audition at all is Stephen Amell for Oliver Queen. We watch his audition. One of us runs, like Lewis runs, down that hallway, knocks on Greg's door, and Greg's like, there's no way you saw someone good that fast. And we're like, not only Greg, but not only did we see someone good, we saw Oliver. Like, it wasn't even a question. Like, I mean, to the point where, you know, when you cast a network pilot, you actually have to bring to the network another two actors, at least, a minimum, to test we didn't even know who we would pick for number two. And to this day, I still can't tell you who number two was because, I mean, that poor that poor bastard, whoever he was, like, had no chance. I mean, I actually, Stephen so blew me away that I saved his audition on my computer. Like, I, I have, still have his, his original audition because I was like, even if we don't end up casting him for whatever reason, we can't make a deal, the network doesn't like him, whatever, I'm like, this guy... This guy's a star. Did you uh, not ever, you know, usually, I I've ne- I don't know how auditions work, right? Um, but I've always thought of it as like the Tinder problem of you have to kind of go through, like, you know, you, you find a match and you're like, yeah, really good, but man, I'm missing out on so many other people. And you kind of like want to go have this impulse to go through the whole thing. Did you not yeah. have that in this case where you're like, yes, this person's really good, Tape's awesome. Got to save it, but I got to go see this through because I don't know what else I'm going to miss out on. You're you're absolutely right. It's a very apt analogy. Um, I, I'm going to shimmy the. I'm going to add a shimmy to the analogy, which is back when we were doing Arrow it was on a normal network schedule, mm-hmm. which means that all the pilots that are going to be shot that year are being prepped and cast by all the other studios and networks at the same time. Mm-hmm. So it's like looking at a Tinder profile. And you're, you you don't even have the luxury, really, of saying, well, what if there's someone else out there? Because you're like, I got to get this person right now because, <laughs> you know, and, and that's the thing. We were like our casting director, David Rappaport, he basically he brought in Stephen first very intentionally. He knew Stephen was the guy. In fact, by the way, Grant Gustin played Flash and um, Melissa Benoist, who played Supergirl, they were also the very first actors that uh, that. Uh, David brought in for their respective shows. So, so David really knows his business. This was like a Monday or a Tuesday. And and he said, just FYI, Stephen's going to be off the market by Friday. By, by the end of the week, someone else will have snatched him up. Because again, for the same reason I kept his audition, mm-hmm. it was so obvious the man's a star. Right. So <laughs> it's it's sort of like, uh, it's like Tinder, but with, you better swipe. Yeah, and so they're, getting, they're, getting, they're getting married by this weekend. Okay. <laughs> yeah. The iconic, 
Salmon Ladder sequence? The pilot was was directed by David Nutter. David Nutter um, is the uh, Steven Spielberg of television pilots. Uh, he he's known for directing the Red Wedding episode of Game of Thrones, for example. But what he's truly amazing at is directing pilots. His his batting average is ridiculous. It's like nine hundred. I'm not joking. And and some of the shows that he's directed are iconic shows like Supernatural and I'm of course blanking on the other names. But anyway, while David was up in Vancouver prepping the show, Stephen was down in Los Angeles working with a trainer to bulk up and and learn the parkour stuff we wanted him to do and the fighting stuff with someone from American Ninja Warrior. And uh, Stephen would just occasionally send pho- phone videos up to Vancouver, you know, for David to see like, oh, I'm doing this today. I'm doing that today. Yeah. And he sent the Salmon Ladder video, a video of him like this, this trainer's got me doing this. And David, again, the man is Steven Spielberg. He immediately he immediately saw the potential. He saw that it would be iconic um, right. because, you know, it, is, it was something that none of us had ever seen before. Yeah, you know, totally. Was, yeah. And Steven was doing it. I mean, yeah. he was just like doing it with these up and down, up and down. Um so it was like we're putting that in, putting that in the show. Yeah, my God. I, I trust me. I went there, tried it, and I was like, yeah, this is not for me. Uh, you know, the, 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 I mean, the, I I remember watching it, right, and watching it and looking at Shuram going, that's incredible. I don't know how he did that. I don't know what CGI magic this yeah. is, but this is amazing. It just blew us away because it's so unique and different. I was in New York shooting the other pilot that I was producing, and I would get the dailies, you know. Uh, uh, on my computer each day, and I, I, re- I literally remember. It's like one of those, you know, seminal moments. I remember where I was, mm. when I was doing, where I was sitting, how I was sitting when I saw the Daily Star, and I was like, yeah. I, I didn't think that I didn't know that it would be iconic. What makes for a great pilot of a TV show? Because when you get the great, I think the Arrow one is one of the phenomenal great ones. The last J.J. Abrams one, opening on Jack's Eye, one of the other famous ones. If you look at all the iconic ones, they have so much to do. Introduce the characters, you know, introduce the stakes, do all the basics, mm-hmm. show enough that get you really hooked, have enough things happen in the very first episode, you know, probably spending a lot of your money in there, but also set up all the elements and structure to keep you watching not just this episode, but also going to be the structure for a season which may not have been picked up yet when you actually you know, written the pilot and makes you want to, you know, then hit next on Netflix or wait for the next week, whatever it may be. So what are the elements that make for a great pilot? I think at a minimum, there's directing, writing, which includes the story and how much you're telling and everything and, and casting. And I think you need a minimum of two of the three in order for it to work. Um, And of those two, probably one is going to be casting. So I think it's like casting and either the directing has to be really good or the writing has to be really good because television is different from film. You know, in, in film, we're going, we used to at least, go into theaters. Our relationship with the actors is very different. They're on a huge screen and we're sitting and we're on a night out. Whereas with television, you're inviting the cast into your bedroom, into your living room. Um, it's a more intimate relationship. So I, I feel like you can actually get away with not great casting in a movie mm-hmm. if writing and the directing are great, mm-hmm. but you can't get away with that in television. Like you mentioned the Lost Pilot. I, I think J.J. Abrams' superpower, 
Um, and he's obviously very talented and he does a lot of things well. But I think the thing he doesn't get enough credit for is his ability to cast. Give me an example. Oh, well, Chris Pine uh, as Captain Kirk. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, the whole cast of Lost, I mean, they're all like perfect, like perfect choices. Daisy, finding Daisy Ridley for Force Awakens. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, he, he, I can't actually think of a movie or a TV show, quite frankly, Jennifer Gardner for Alias. Like, he, I mean, everything he has worked on, the casting is pitch perfect. I mean, mm-hmm. to, to a ridiculous degree, there's not a single weak bat in the whole lineup. And in many ways, like the number of stars that he has not created so much as found, located and found people who would become, who had star quality, who would become stars is, is uh, I don't, I don't even know who number two is in terms of that. So I, I think, you know, and like I said, with television, casting is so critical. I mean, Lost is, it look, it's brilliantly directed. It's brilliantly written. It's, you know, it's it's shot in Hawaii. The mm-hmm. production values are great. But to me, when, it's fine. My uh, daughter just uh, rewatched that, the pilot with her friend. And I was like looking in and, you know, sitting there for a bit. And I was just, I was so blown away by like, with all those elements, if you don't have that cast, I don't yep. think it's the same show. Wow, okay. it's, it's certainly not a phenomenon. So the pilot happens and the show gets picked up. Is there pressure now to go deliver based on, like the pilot was amazing. Oh my God, we don't want this to, you know, just deteriorate from yeah. there. How, what, what happens? Yeah, post-pilot? Now we got to save the city. Well, <laughs> we, had, we had two, what I would describe as unfun conversations. Okay. Um, the, the first was the studio execs brought us in and said, the pilot looks like a movie. Um, how are you going to do that every week on a TV, on a network budget and a right. network uh, schedule? And we, I'll be honest with you, I don't know what line of bullshit I gave. Because I truth be told, looking back on I'm like, I don't think we really had a plan for how we were going to square the circle. But we were very, very lucky. David Barrett, um, this amazing director who's done millions of hours of television and movies, he came in and he directed episode two. Mm-hmm. And he really raised the ball. I mean, in fact, I think you go back and you look at Arrow episode one and episode two compared to the things we did even in season one, much less in season you know five, um, it looks small now. You know, right. um, we kind of learn, you know, David, we were fortunate enough to David's, David Barrett, like took what David Nutter had done and elevated it. And he brought in things like the steady cam and what we call the Russian arm and, and things that helped us make the action sequences look incredible. So that one moment was like the studio going like, how are you going to do this every week? And the other was Peter Roth, again, the head of Warner Brothers Television, took us out to lunch and explained to us in painstaking detail how if this show doesn't work there is no cw wow okay oh, wow. wow no pressure no pressure uh, okay i have a theory on the jumping off that which i want to run by you which is the arrow famously i would say creates the mcu of tv right it's you know uh, in so many ways everything which happens after the flash supergirl all the the crisis storylines right. all of that right happens you know because of the arrow and cw and all tying back to that pilot, that show. In some ways, that pilot is the version of Iron Man and Sam Jackson showing up and saying, uh, I want to talk to you about the Avengers Initiative. Now, the theory I have 
is uh, if you look at both those examples, none of them had new or for a design from the scratch to be an entire universe franchise. Right. On the right. other hand, when you look at sh movies and shows which were designed from the beginning to be like, oh, this is going to be the monster universe, there's going to be three movies, or there's going to be a multi-thing arc, and there's one on Amazon right now, it's going to be one in every movie. They don't often work. Yeah. Right? And there's they know and there's something so they have yet to work. Yes, they're yet to work. So why is it that's fascinating? Because it is almost these you have these organic things, you know, and maybe there's a red herring in there and we can explore, but nobody and that becomes basically a universe. And they had people like, I'm gonna give you money for multiple movies, multiple shows, constructed from the beginning, but they never work. Why is that? Well, it's I think it's very simple. If you try to run before you can walk, you're going to end up on your face. Mm. And I think, you know, all those, you know, movies that uh, have come out and said, this is the start of a universe. They're so focused on the universe. They haven't, you know, you're basically building a house and you have to lay the foundation first. Um, and by the way, it's just, it take it from the call writer of Green Lantern. It's really hard for any of these things to be good. Mm -hmm. Focusing on the future keeps you from paying attention to the present. Like get, get that. I mean, we weren't even thinking again of Arrow as a universe. We weren't even thinking of it as a series. We were thinking of it as let's get the pilot right. Let's do the pilot correctly. In fact, there's only one Easter egg, and that's the thing. We didn't actually think we were planting any flags. We um, were only thinking in terms of Easter eggs, like fun things that we thought as fans ourselves we'd like to see. Um, for example, like in the opening shot of the pilot, you see the Deathstroke mask. Mm. Um, and you know how that came about? That that didn't come about because we planned on putting Deathstroke in the show. That came about <laughs> because David Nutter was like, I've got an idea for a shot, but I need something in the foreground here that I can pan, off, pan across. Mm. And Jeff Johns was on set that day and he's like, you know, when they were prepping it um, and he's like, well, what, what if it was Deathstroke's mask? Just, it would be a fun Easter egg. No, no expectations, no ambitions beyond. Um, and that's so much of what season one of Arrow was. It, it wasn't us planting flags and saying, we're going to revisit this. Mm. It was us saying, this would be fun. Because mm. a lot of this would be fun. So one of the things that you know, we were talking about uh, is, um, you know, if you look at that show uh, or the first Iron Man movie, which I recently rewatched on yes. a plane, and it yeah. it is amazing. It is, first of all, you realize how tonally different that movie is from what yeah. the MCU uh, has now. Uh, and, and and to date, I think that's my favorite Marvel movie because it's, it's so... Really? Over like Avengers Endgame? Yeah, and, totally. Okay. I mean, a lot of them, I think... Okay, so part of it, I think it's like you have bigger budgets and everything else. But with Iron Man, you kind of see how much they work with the constraints they had. And yeah. uh, and and it's a lot of it is, I think, like Robert Downing Jr. just trying to like will this into existence. He's like trying to go make this whole thing work. And it's also, it feels like one of those classic comic books of this like all American story of like this underdog trying to like come out. But I love the ending where it's like so unexpected and it's just these like little treats through the whole movie that makes you just want to root for the protagonist so much. I just love the story and, so much. I'll also tell you like, you know, uh, and this kind of become a trope now, the MCU movies and I blame the first Guardians of the Galaxy for this, uh, uh, you know, uh, which is a fantastic movie, right? Like when Chris Pratt 
dances across the screen you know i remember theater lighting up fantastic movie james gunn deserves all the flowers for that and everything that came after but i think when that movie happened a lot of the mcu movies started taking on a similar tone right like there's actually a whole thing, yeah there's yeah. This, there's actually a whole thing on tiktok about uh you know the mcu quip where you get the same superheroes make the exact same quip at all times or people not die and if you look at the first iron man that tone doesn't exist that quip doesn't doesn't exist but also actions have consequences and it's very serious and people die people die yeah. like the guy uh you know the doctor in the cave you know dies guys uh, are like the the thing gets blown up in front of them yeah, the soldiers yeah. die very immediately very quickly right in the, the beginning bat. and uh it's it just so different from yeah. the mc movies of today so uh, similar i think with like thor ragnarok you could kind of yeah. see that too where it's like people are dying and it's like this person's evil and she's the villain and you can you can kind of feel like you have these emotions whereas with like i think with guardians of the galaxy like you mentioned it's like it's so jokey and it makes me just want to punch somebody because i'm like <laughs> well why does it have to be so funny it's not funny just move on like you don't have to be the hero who's just placating everybody else well i think it's worse than funny it's predictable and right. you almost know that you know there's going to be a quip or somebody's going to you know very serious consequences scheme they're going to make fun of each other and it kind of works within the guardians frame but sometimes the other movies do a dance know. off and yeah yeah, yeah. But, but that that was great that was a great sequence though, in the first movie but i i just have a theory as to why that's happened i i i think it's the avengers movies hmm. because the avengers movies like especially the first avengers and i i yeah, i know he's been canceled and, and properly so and everything but but you you got to give joss Whedon props for doing something that quite frankly should have been impossible which is take all these disparate movies with all these disparate tones and different characters and everything and put them in one movie that all works that mm-hmm. movie just works mm-hmm. and but the problem is, is that once you start combining these different voices you end up with sort of a a, a a uniform tone that gets carried over and refined from movie to movie to movie to movie um can i tell you guys two quick stories yes. about iron man yep. really just my first okay so the first is i was invited to a screening of iron man Uh, I was very excited. I, you know, of course, love Iron Man. I show up, I'm wearing jeans and a t-shirt, but I show up at Man's Chinese Theater and I realize, oh my God, this isn't a screen. This is the premiere. Um, so I was the most underdressed person at yeah. the Iron Man. Iron Man is the reason Green Lantern got made hmm. because it, totally unplanned, we, obviously movies come out over the weekend and we delivered our draft of our first draft of Green Lantern to Warner Brothers the Monday after mm. the movie opened and had a huge weekend and you know we had jet fighters in in our movie and you know Iron Man's kind of like a human jet fighter and you know Green Lantern is not an A-list well-known character for most people um Iron Man certainly was not and that movie was kind of like proof of concept that you can take a character who's not Spider-Man Superman or Wonder Woman and or Batman and make the most successful movie out of them. So if Iron Man had come out and bombed, there would have been no yeah. Green Lantern. So fast forwarding to, you know, 2023, right? Like we live in the world of multiple Marvel movies a year, uh, you know, all now connecting into this different storyline. And I think one of the questions that I have for you is A is there a uh, comic book movie uh fatigue and are some of the tropes so overdone and i want to give you a couple of like, kind of reference points here one is you know back in the day when you had say bane enterprises vaguely referred to in a yeah. superman we are like 
oh my goodness, Bruce Wayne and Batman <laughs> actually live in the same world as Superman. Like, can you believe that, right? Now, in 2023, it is now commonplace to have multiple timelines and, you know, you know that they're going to have, like, bring back the 80s actor who played this role. It's almost yeah. commonplace. Like, you know, Crisis on Infinite Earths, all those things are now happening in, in, the, in the movies. That's number one. And the reference point I think about is Westerns in the 60s where, you know, there was an era where everyone's watching Westerns and then there was time when every trope got so overdone and then it kind of reaches natural thing. And then maybe 20, 30 years later, you had a movie like Unforgiven come out, mm. which deconstructed the Western and they kind of said, well, this is why Westerns worked and it's kind of almost a defining word, but there's kind of an exhaustion period. So I am curious of, do you think, you know, the current shit of comic book movies, both the Marvel side and the DC side, are reaching a point of exhaustion where they're like every sort of origin story, costume, uh, discovery of powers, introduction of the villain, the sidekick, uh, multiple timelines now is so overdone and so explored and there's going to be fatigue. Look, I think so. I think superhero movies are going to become like what Westerns are, which is it's a genre that mm -hmm. you revisit every now and again. Uh, I, I question myself, how much of this is superhero movie fatigue and how much of this is not great superhero movie fatigue. Mm. Um, because here's the thing. Look at one of the most successful movies of this uh, of this year is Across the Spider-Verse. Yes. Which is mm. a show with all the tropes, including the multiverse, and it's a huge, huge hit. Why is it such a huge hit? Because it's done so well. Yeah. I mean, it's so good. I, I, so I, I don't, I personally don't think of it in terms of like the audience is tired or not tired. I think what the audience is basically telling us with their dollars is for a long time, movie superhero movies that were not particularly good were doing gangbuster business mm -hmm. because of just the flywheel and everything. We're thankfully, I've, I, because I think this is good for comic movies. I think it's good for the business. I think it's good for the audience. Thankfully, I think we're past that. We're basically saying, like, we're, we're the the audience is basically saying to us, you've got to justify the experience of going out to the theater and seeing this in a, in a, as a movie, as opposed to waiting a couple of months to watch it on Disney plus. Or whatever. That's true. I think the it does better worse. Uh, there's also like all these examples, right? There's like, for example, the Deadpool movies or uh, Logan from a few years ago. Uh, yeah. But talk about superhero movies. Maybe let's go back to the original and maybe the one which gets John of the Superman. And there's a couple of questions. So I grew up on Superman. There's a Chris Reeve, uh, you know, behind me uh, uh, right there, which kind of really defined my childhood. And now, you know, as we're recording this, it's obviously, you know, James Gunn has been actively casting for his version of Superman. So two questions, right? Uh, or maybe just one question. Superman is always rumored uh, or always seen as a very difficult movie to get, right? As opposed to Batman, as you know, because yes. the, the, the theory that I've heard as an outsider is he has no darkness, he's goody to shoes, Right, as opposed to you know, you can explore kind of the psychological trauma that makes up Bruce Wayne losing his parents and all of that. Uh, and you know, it's some it, obviously as iconic as Chris Christopher Reeve movies are, and I think Henry uh, Cavill also did a great job, and sort of Brandon Routh. They have never actually been in the top tier as much as the, maybe the character should. And this has been one of the rumors of why those names are hard. What's the question? Okay. Well, the question is: uh, <laughs> A, do you agree? And B, if suddenly tomorrow you had James Gunn or the role to kind of make any Superman movie that you want to make, right? Like, how would you attack this character? I'll answer the first question yeah. first, which is, I, I don't at all agree with the premise that you can't make a good Superman movie. And I particularly don't agree with that premise 
based upon the argument that he's too much of a goody two shoes and he doesn't have any darkness. And there's three reasons why I don't agree. Captain America, the first Avenger, Captain America, the Winter Soldier, Captain America, Civil War. Two amazing movies, one pretty good movie, um, all of with all all with with a character who is a goody two shoes who has no darkness to him. Mm. So you can't tell me it, it, that's the problem. I, I honestly I feel like the the reason we haven't gotten a good Superman movie is because we haven't embraced what Superman is. Like I mean, I, there's a lot of things I liked about Man of Steel. I think the whole Krypton sequence is brilliant. Mm-hmm. The first 18 minutes are genius. Uh, the casting of Henry Cavill is. Mwah, chef's kiss. It's wonderful. Yep. Um, in fact, at the very end of that movie, he's at the Daily Planet and he makes the joke about being from out of town or something. And I was like, that's the movie I wish we had gotten. You know, I, I, w- I wish we had gotten a, a because to me. And this gets the second part of your question is what, you know, what would I do? Well, first of all, I would I would do a very back to the basics kind of Superman movie. And to me. The back to the basics version of Superman is he's a mild manner of a reporter for the Daily Planet. Um, the difference between his Clark identity, the Superman identity, the idea that he's the last of his kind, um, you know, something with heart and humor and, you know, that's not trying to set up a whole universe, um, you know, that just give me just a I just want a great Superman movie. And, and by the way, bonus points if Lex Luthor's not the bad guy, just because we've seen that so much, you know. Give me Brainiac. Give me Metallo. Give me, you know, Mixes Piddle. I don't care. Like, great like, pronunciation right there. Yeah. Tell me, tell me the, yeah. you know, tell me just a wonderful Superman mm-hmm. story. Um, I, I know that, that they exist because I've read them in the comics, you know. Um, do you think, uh, you know, this, I, I kind of worry about this in the Batman movies, right? Because in just in the last 25 years, I can think of, uh, uh, let's see, Clooney, Kilmer, uh, you know, uh, uh, Christian Bale, uh, uh, Batfleck, uh, Batfleck, and now uh, Robert Pattinson, Michael Keaton again. And I would say, that in some ways, the Nolan movies were so good that everyone after, and I think, like in some ways, I think Batfleck, Ben Affleck is now getting like a bunch of credit for the movies that he did. But like the Nolan movies so good that Christian Bale kind of like defined the role. And in a different universe, where I think the Robert Pattinson movie would have done even better if. Christian Bale and and the those movies hadn't been so definite, which is a roundabout way of asking: Is Henry Cavill so now so tied to that role and that look? He is so Superman in people's heads after Christopher Reeve that do you think sometimes time needs to go by for some other actor to be cast and accepted in such a role? That's a great question. That's a really great question. Um, I'll be honest with you it's it's hard to answer because I think the Nolan films are so perfect that there's part of like part of the the challenge of making a Batman movie after the Nolan trilogy is not just Christian Bale was so good as both mm-hmm. Batman and Bruce Wayne. It was because these movies were so great. Mm-hmm. I think the fact that, you know, the Henry Cavill Superman movies, you know, I, I, I never like to pass judgment on another writer or director's work, but I will say that suffice it to say, we never got the version that we never got the the pure version of Henry Cavill as Superman mm-hmm. that I was craving, and I think because of that, it probably opens up more of an opportunity for another actor to come in and embody that role. It, that's a tough. One. I'm gonna be. That's a question I'm gonna be thinking about. Like you know, 
like at, at midnight tonight, I'm going to, you know, wake up and go, ah, that's what I should have said. I want to talk about the weaponization of nostalgia. What does that mean? Well, let me put it this way. I think the first time I saw this happening was I was in the theater and this is the trailer of The Force Awakens. The first time The Force Awakens trailer yeah. was popping up. And if you remember the trailer, there are all these shots. There's a shot of like Ray zipping past, you know, the crashed, uh, you know, cruiser uh, and so on. The crowd erupts on two sequences. The first is just the beginning where LucasArts shows up and you get the tinkling sound. Yeah. And the second is there's a blackout scene in the sequence in the, in the trailer. And then you hear uh, Harrison Ford uh, say, Chewie, we are home. And it opens up them being the Millennium Falcon, yeah, right? Yes. And yeah. I was, I forget which movie. It's one of these big movies, summer blockbusters, because they're doing the trailer right before that. The entire theater erupted when that happened, right? Because it yeah. was like, and by the way, I felt that many of the times for me, it was when watching the Brandon Routh movie and when John Williams' score hits and you get the the big S. I was back seven years old watching this yeah. movie with my dad. And I want to talk about Picard because I think there's another version of it. Now, but, you know, what seemed unusual then, you've seen so many versions of now, um, you know, most famously, you know, for example, I think uh, Marvel actually did a fantastic job with this, uh, with the Spider-Man version. Like yeah. that, I was there in the theater when, uh, so I'm just describing these things, but when, you know, like when Andrew Garfield walks in and then Tobey Maguire walks in, the theater just erupts, right? Like it just, my, my audience went crazy too. It's so crazy. It's so crazy. It's so perfectly and well done and all of it. I know we have like Michael Keaton coming back. Uh, I haven't seen the movie, but Michael Keaton coming back. Now, do you think though that this is now a trope where, you know, you get Hollywood basically like, okay, let's go back and let's go back to the 90s and let's go back and, and there is always kind of a multiple, a flashback sequence or a multiple timeline sequence and let's basically weaponize yeah, your childhood is, is memory. the issue that you seem to clearly like it. Well, I think I like it when it's well done, right. but there are a lot of cases when it is not. I'll give you cases where it is not, and this may have a lot of other issues, is the recent uh, Jurassic Park movie, right? Where you get, uh, you know, Sam, but it just doesn't work, right? You're like, yeah, it, so it's is sort of, it that they're overdoing it, overusing yeah, it? Yeah, it, there's an overdoing part. Sometimes yeah. it's done right and sometimes it's not uh, right. done right. So I'm guessing the question is, A, is it being overdone? And how and how when is it, and how would you do it right? And, and when is it just a cash grab? Well, here's the thing. I This is very Pollyanna-ish of me, but I like to think of these things not as tropes, but as its own sort of subgenre. Um, the, the legacy sequel. You know, where you're, you're bringing, like, actually, I like, swear sort of the first legacy sequel I can think of is a movie called The Color of Money that Martin Scorsese directed back in the 80s, early 90s, I think it was the 80s, where it was uh, Tom Cruise and Paul Newman. And it was actually a sequel to Paul Newman's much, much, much older movie called The Hustler. Um, and Paul Newman was reprising his role as Fast Eddie Phelps. This is uh, based on a, a two novels written by the same guy who wrote The Queen's Gambit. It was really, honestly, technically a legacy sequel. It was sort of the first of its kind. It sort of taught me, you can do this as long as you're doing it well. Yes, there's like little cameos that feel like fan service or feel like a cash grab. Um, but if it's, a, if it's a, a, a compelling story that has a reason to exist beyond just its existence... Mm -hmm. Then I think it's good. Like I mean, I'm, I'm it, like, you know what? My favorite example of the movie, which disappointed me the most on this, the recent Matrix. Oh my yes, god! I think actually yes. the, the recent Matrix is. I, I, the funny thing is, I think Lila Wachowski and I. I you know, I got this from a couple of interviews. I, I think she was trying to kind of tell a meta story about how she felt about the franchise. Mm -hmm. 
And it's kind of there in like the video game analog and everything. But I, I just think the story she was trying to tell wasn't, it, it didn't end up on screen. Yeah. It um, felt like she was trying to be self-aware, but in yes. like a really weird deprecating way. Yeah, and I agree. It yeah. just made me feel mad because we, you know, for us, Matrix was like, it's so, and for a lot of like, techy nerdy people yeah. matrix is a thing that is like the beginning of our careers where we got into yeah. this it's it holds this really powerful position to yeah. kind of like yeah. come back all these movies later and then like backstab felt yeah. like it felt so personal to me and i just got like yeah mad. i was like, so mad when you watch the movie but <laughs> i think there's a pattern here just get, because because i think talking about the context of individual movies and shows is very interesting which is sometimes the the people involved with the making of a franchise, sometimes the actors who portray, you know, iconic characters or the movie makers, they just want to go in a different direction. But the fans are, are so in love with a certain aspect of a character or franchise and they want to take, and they want that to continue. And my favorite recent example of this is Picard. Jean-Luc Picard has sort of uh, influenced me maybe more than any character in culture, right? Uh, I think a lot of people, you know, when you grew up, you were like, this is the guy I want to grow up to be. This is how you manage, you, how you be a leader, how you manage conflict, all of it, right? Like, we all grew up in the range, you know, Jean-Luc Picard was the guy. And, you know, everything, right? you remember the iconic episodes, I still remember him crying with his brother. And when Picard season one came out, right? Like, I, but the backdrop for this, by the way, is I felt like the TNG cast never got the proper send-off. You had this weird ending where Data kind of dies in Nemesis and whatever. But anyway, so when Picard season came out, I was over the mood. I was like, okay, we're go now going to see the the actual send-off for the TNG cast for maybe what is one of the most beloved characters, you know, on TV with one of the most beloved actors. But Picard season one wasn't that, uh, right? It had some elements, right? And you obviously was amazing you know, to kind of see him, Sir Patrick Stewart, Patrick, uh, him playing uh, the character, but it wasn't that, right? Until season three. So, but I guess I want to get to season three, but, but do you think sometimes as a creator of a movie, or a show or an actor wants to go in a different direction, but the fans are like, no, 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 we want the thing that we loved. And well, I'll, I'll tell you two things. First of all, I, I'll, I'll say, I, I think you you forgot or you left out the most important thing that Picard stood for. That boldness can be cool. Ah, right, right, okay. No, so just had to get that in. Um, the, the, the other, you know, somewhere Mark Mark Andreessen is going to watch this episode and be like, "Aha, I agree." <laughs> Look, I think I think it's been pretty sort of very publicly, you know, said in interviews and stuff that Patrick Stewart was very clear with the producers that when he came back to reprise the character in, in Picard season one and two, he didn't he didn't want to be on the bridge of a starship. He didn't want to be saying engage. And and I think you know the the various writers and showrunners of those first two seasons we're sort of working within because. trying to work within those constraints and everything. And you can, and they can argue like, I think in season one, season two, there are successful moments in each of those seasons, but you're right. Like it wasn't what the, uh, the audience wanted, what the, what the fans wanted was they, they want to see him on the bridge of a starship saying engage. We don't have the kind of time it takes for me to list all the different ways Picard season three is brilliant. Um, but I will say it starts, it starts off with, it's about something. Mm -hmm. Very clear. Again, there, there's a reason for that story to exist beyond just what the fans want or beyond giving the TNG crew a send-off that they deserve. It's, a, it's about 
what we pass on to our children. It's a very clear, universal, visceral theme that runs throughout the entire piece. And I, I actually think, look, as far as I'm concerned, Terry Metalis cannot get enough credit. Oh, yes. Um, and, but what he really doesn't, I think, get enough credit for is telling a story with such a compelling theme that affects all of the, the that touches all these characters. Mm. Um, so that it's not just getting them back on the bridge of the Enterprise D. Getting them on the bridge of the Enterprise D is the, it's the grace note, it's the cherry on top mm. of the Sunday. But the best, you know, I mean, Wrath of Khan was about getting old and it was about sacrifice. It was, you know, the best, I, the, and this is true for anything, I think. The, you know, everyone says like, what makes any story is character. Mm. Um, and I agree with that, but I think ahead of character, it should always be theme. Mm. What's this thing about? Why are we watching it? You know, why does this story in whatever form need to come into yeah. existence? It's it's um, so interesting you say that because now that you say it, you kind of viscerally feel it as the audience too. Because for this season, because I, uh, it's less about the acting and the casting yeah. for us. Like when Sharma and I look at like season three, yeah. like this Picard season, we're like, oh my god, there is a story, there is an agenda, there there, there are stakes, and yeah. if the stakes are so high, and if they don't actually, be, if they are not successful. This would be really yeah. bad for everyone. And it's yeah. very clear off the bat what is the theme yeah. of this entire season. You know, I would say in season three, I think for me, a couple of things. One is that every bit of fan service feels very earned. Mm. Uh, yes. You know, like, so for example, uh, Riker humming the tune, uh, all of yes. it. Uh, the second is they have enough time to deconstruct every character. And kind of play off of like their issues back on TNG, right? Like Jordy and uh, every single character basically gets an episode all to themselves again, uh, except Wesley, which I cannot totally understand. But let's leave Will Wheaton aside. Uh, well, I think it was hard. I think it was. I think it was hard because of where Wesley's character was left at the end of season two. Yeah, I will say, like you know, Terry in, in online got like a lot of crap originally for the early episodes. Like where, where's the seven? Where, why aren't they all on, you know, on the bridge together already? And Terry was so smart about, you know, the yes. ways he constructed it and doled it out so that those character moments that you're talking about could breathe. Yes, yes. Right, exactly. I, I, and I just want to say like that moment, uh, and again, if you haven't seen the show, close your eyes, you know, because that moment, when uh, they wind up uh, on back on the D, that the bridge slowly lights up. Adi was there next to me. I had tears, right? And I swear every Trek fan had tears too because, you know, you have you have like 30 years of history, uh, 40 years of history. You have like eight episodes leading up to this. The entire show has done these kind of these dark bridges, right? And you know you're going to get that because they've shown every single other ship. So you, it's almost like now we're like, all right, I know they're going to get here. But when that that ship lights up, I think of it as as perfect as see the portal sequence, even more perfect because it goes back much further in time. You know, I was in tears. Like it's one of the best moments of TV that I've seen in a long, long time. It's it's I mean, I, the funny thing is, like I knew, like when they set up the museum, I knew we would see the D, the outside. Of the D, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, yeah. Um, you got the asset, but I I think maybe it was the TV producer in me. I never in a million years imagined that they would rebuild the set. 
Like I just, I didn't even dare to dream that they could do that. Um, and it's incredible. Um, it's amazing. It, it's it's such a great so moment. I have this kind of tangential question. But sorry, this episode has just become me talking about my favorite moment. I know this is basically sure. I'm just yeah. We I don't that podcast. I'd I'd subscribe. Um, I have to ask this: What is your information diet like? Like how many shows? movies tv shows like what do you watch what do you consume on a weekly basis but Great. the second part of my question is how do you worry about how much influence that has in your actual like your day-to-day work and what you write and what you produce and everything else on how much you like derive from it and i don't mean derive in a negative way it's like do you think about it as like good for the, the information diet is good versus bad what is it like and yep. how do you think about it Great question. Um, well, I'm going to take the second part first. Okay, yeah. So I, it's funny. One, one thing I've sort of really been struggling with uh, as we're now in like the, you know, the third month of, of this writer's strike yep. is I've really been struggling with inspiration. I realize that part of the reason I've been struggling with it, you know, we're on strike and it's a bummer and everything, is I haven't been watching uh, as many TV shows and movies as I normally try to. Part of it is just like, you know, just the way my days have sort of been unfolding and everything. My, I will say to answer your first part of your question, my information diet in terms of media is not great. Um, I, I basically for a long time, I'm trying to break myself of this habit. I created this rule for myself that I would only watch television in bed at night before I go to bed. And the problem is, um, I'm 52 years old and I'm right now I'm walking around in a circle, you know, in the sun carrying a sign all day. Um, I'm really, really tired. So I'll get by like 15 minutes if I'm asleep. So I'm just not watching as many things as I really should be. I find what I've been doing is uh, I'm I'm reading probably the same amount of comic books I've always read, but I'm listening to a lot more audiobooks. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'll do it on the picket line, uh, you know. So that's a lot of my content lately has been has been audiobooks. Uh, I would love to watch more things. I'm, I'm currently watching Secret Invasion right now mm-hmm. uh, and enjoying it. I'm going to go see Mission Impossible. I saw Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. We'll be watching for uh, Mission in, in two hours. Mission Impossible. Minus two hours. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I'm jealous. Um, we I'm try waiting. and we try and get our nanny to stay a little late on Thursdays, just in the off chance that we have a summer blockbuster. Yeah, I think it's very important to watch these movies with the opening weekend crowd, uh, especially yeah. for somebody. For example, I watch. I was so happy we found managed to find a way to watch John Wick Four yeah. in yeah. the uh, yeah, opening God. weekend, and that movie is so special. But watching it with the crowd. Right, yes. who's so into it is so important, and I agree. Uh, uh, yeah. So, Mission Impossible too. Okay, so I want to talk about this. The news of the day, in some ways, is the actors are going to be joining the writers officially. I think it's been now. rumored for a while, but it's official today. So, and for a lot of audience who can maybe in the tech world, they have kind of been hearing about it, but not totally understanding it. So, maybe in the broadest terms, like talk to us a bit about like what is this strike about? What brought us here? And uh, obviously, your part of it you're actively you know out there holding a sign but how do you see this playing out so there's a lot of things in there you know my reaction to the uh you know to the sad the screen actors guild going out on strike is well now you've done it you've gone all, you've gone and pissed off the pretty people once you know <laughs> because the, the thing is like we're we're the ab squad we're the chess club of hollywood but 
Now you've got the cheerleading squad of the football team uh, and, and they're pissed off. It was first yeah. the nerds and now the jocks are involved. Yeah, now, now it's like, okay, now you got <laughs> now you got some problems. Um, you know, here's here's the thing. I have a, maybe I, I think I, to your question of like, what's the strike about? Um, I have, I have what may be a minority opinion. What we are striking for is actually not why we're striking. The reason fundamentally why we're striking and why the actors are striking is the business got disrupted. Mm -hmm. um, it got broken. People are just fundamentally unhappy. Um, they're angry. They're, they're either underemployed or overworked or underpaid. And, you know, and it's, it's just become a very untenable business. Uh, and it's certainly become an untenable career for writers and actors. I would also argue for directors as well. These two strikes is really just a primal scream about this, guys, this ain't working for us. You got to fix it. Like, because it was working before and it's not working now. And, you know, all of us will have different opinions as to like how to fix it. You know, there's different, everyone's got different concerns. There's AI, there's virtual auditions, there's, you know, span protection for writers, there's minimum room size, but like all that stuff is to me, like that's the house. The foundation is what we really have to talk about. And the foundation is this fundamental anger. I mean, it's just, it's pure and visceral and real, you know, disruption's fine, but the idea of disruption is you're supposed to disrupt things in a positive direction. Um, and unfortunately, I think things have been disrupted positively for the consumer. Like, I, look, I think nonlinear television is great. As a consumer, I love it. The idea that I can watch any show at any time, mm -hmm. you know, on my tablet, on my phone. You know, I hate people who watch television on their phone. Yeah. I'm like, that's incredible. Um, but for a variety of different reasons that has resulted in major damage to just the fund, the, the business fundamentals. Um, and, and that's a problem. There's also, you know, related to that, there's just a massive, there's a massive gap between what the CEOs are making and how they're spending their money and what we are as writers and, and actors are getting. <laughs> um, you know, the thing I keep saying is Hollywood has the money. I, and the reason I know this is I see how Hollywood is spending their money. And it's not like, look, is it fun to shame David Zasloff for how much money he makes? Yes, I'll be honest with you. It's a lot of fun because quite frankly, he should be ashamed. But Wall Street has clearly decided that he's worth it. Fine. Who am I to question Wall Street? But you can't tell me you don't have the money because mm -hmm. I see you spending it. It's their prerogative to pay David Zasloff and mm -hmm. all these CEOs tens of hundreds of millions of dollars. But it's our prerogative to stand up and say, yeah, this is not cool with us. Um, mm -hmm. I, you, you know, I think you mentioned something because one of the items in the strike is AI. Right. And, and there's kind of multiple elements in here. But I think one is actors uh, and their control over the likenesses that they have. Um, yep. And th and there's kind of multiple elements to this. I think you know, the yeah. most common version of it is like, it, actually there's a great Black Mirror episode which just came out with Salma Hayek, which kind of, mm. uh, which I don't want to spoiler, but kind of like deals with the theme I mean, of too far gone into spoilers. Uh, We've yeah. like spoiled five different <laughs> shows. If you're watching, listening to this hour, one hour for 14 minutes and you either switches off to watch Picard season three or you're still listening and you heard everything and you've watched all these shows before. But so, uh, 
actors owning the likenesses. I guess one question for you is the technology seems to be getting better, right? Like from everything I've heard, uh, you know, young Harrison Ford looks a lot better than you know earlier versions of this, like they've tried in like Star Wars movies. Say yeah. fifty years from now, right? Would you rather see fifty years? So you know, it's a long enough period of time, and hopefully Harrison Ford has a many many decades. But let's say seventy years from now. Would you rather see a CGI version of Harrison Ford play Han Solo or Indy, or would you see a young actor recast and have his interpretation of that role? Look, as a fan, I'd rather see young Harrison Ford. I mean, as a fan. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I think, by the way, I, I don't think it's a binary question. I think there's actually a place for for both. You know, there, there's a place for Solo where... It's, you know, uh, Alan Heinrich. But some could argue that the mo- the reason that movie didn't work was people were like, well, that's, that, that's not Harrison Ford. The, the, the movie didn't work. Well, first of all, the movie works, I think, creatively mm-hmm. like gangbusters. The, the reason the movie didn't work financially, there's three reasons. It came out six months after a Star Wars movie. It came out six months after a Star Wars movie. It came out six months after a Star Wars movie. You cannot release Star Wars movies Every six months, you can't do it. No one will convince me that uh, that wasn't the reason Solo didn't do well. Um, but what I was going to say is like, so there's a reason for Solo. There's a space for Solo and there's a space for Indiana Jones' Dial of Destiny. Uh, James Earl Jones, who is, mm-hmm. you know, 90 at least, um, you know, he's definitely up there. He sold to Lucasfilm and Disney his voice. Which, um, by the so- way, our four-year-old daughter now loves... And nothing makes her happier than running around screaming, I'm your father. That's her favorite thing to do. I, by the way, Darth Vader is easily my favorite Star Wars character because he stands for the proposition that you can be a lousy dad and your kids will start, still turn out okay. Um, <laughs> I, that is, I think, an important message, uh, at least for me. Um, so, uh, you know, but like, because James Earl Jones is, has you know, sold the, his voice, we now, for the, until the end of time, will be able to, uh, you know, hear Darth Vader really as Darth Vader was meant to be heard. Um, and obviously technology starts off with the voice, but likeness, as you point out, is not that far behind. Um, so, and again, I'm not opposed to that as long as the actors like James Earl Jones are getting fairly compensated mm-hmm. for it. You know, and, and then like we can have like a debate, not necessarily we, like the three of us, but like people in general have a debate about like, is this good or, you know, is it, is it, it you know, do we want to see a, uh, a, you know, a young Harrison Ford in 20 years reprising his role as Sound Solo? Again, I say, yeah, I wouldn't mind that. Um, but, you know, there will be people I know who will, you know, say it's a, it's a sacrilege and, and those people will have a point, of, you know, a point about that. And, you know, we, we can argue about it in 20 years. Uh, I'm sure we will, by the way. Like, I, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm sure we will. I, my guess is Harrison Ford doesn't sell his likeness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he, yeah, he's, yeah. yeah, I think he said that, you know, Indy dies with him. Han Solo, although we, we've crossed that, but definitely Indiana Jones. Okay. One, uh, you know, last theme maybe, which is uh, MCU and Phase 4. Uh, yeah. And in the sense that that is a prevailing theme that Phase 4 isn't working. And in fact, as we talked today, Bob Iger just came out and talked about how there's been too many TV shows being made. They're going to pull back. Uh, there's been some public comments. Uh, but from kind of like a story, structural, you know, and there's come so many elements, like legal issues and this casting issues, et cetera. 
But I would say as a fan, right, you know, when I watch, say, Ant-Man and the Quantum Quantumania, it is not the same as watching Winter Soldier, where I was like, all right, I know the stakes, I know these characters, I know there's a guy who's saying, I'm going to go do it myself, the, in the Infinity Stones really matter, I know where it's all leading up to. Like, to be honest, I still kind of very fuzzy on where it's all heading up to. What do you think has happened? And B, if you were suddenly in Kevin Feige's role, what would you do? If I was suddenly in Kevin Feige's role, I would I would do basically what, what Iger was saying, which is prune the tree. Um, they, you know, they just there's just too much content. I mean, I'm like the biggest Marvel nerd ever, and I haven't seen Moon Knight. You know, um, I just I can't keep up. There's mm -hmm. just too much content. So, and then of course, like Iger was saying, there's a question of how much content you can you can you produce at quality. Um, but I think to me, the difference between Phase Four and Phases One through Three is fundamentally something very simple, which is you could even watch in Infinity War without having seen the prior, you know, X number of movies. Right. On each movie, like you mentioned Winter Soldier. Winter Soldier was its own movie with a beginning, middle, and end. And yet, like, that movie, like, set the foundation for things that, you know, it didn't deal with Infinity Stones, but it did deal with, you know, Hydra and S.H.I.E.L.D. and Steve Rogers' relationship with the government and the Winter Soldier, like there were a lot of pieces, you know. Mm -hmm. And and same thing with like you know Black Panther. Black mm -hmm. Panther like works great as a movie with a beginning, middle, and end, even though it's setting up this whole world of Wakanda that figures very large in Infinity War. Take compare that with Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, mm -hmm. where in order to understand the villain of the movie, you had to watch not a movie another tv show a yeah, tv show that you had to spend money to subscribe to the mm -hmm. service that aired it like that's the problem each each of these movies in phases one through three they all stood on their own and now look i i get it like i think honestly i think what the marvel cinematic universe is is going through right now is the same discovery that the marvel print universe and the dc print universe also went through which is you know, it's sort of like, I, I think of these universes as like ships. And the longer a ship sails, the more barnacles get attached to its hull. And the more that weighs down the ship and the more it affects how fast the ship can move through the water. And every now and again, you need to do some sort of reboot that scrapes off the barnacles. Like crisis on... I mean, not for nothing, because obviously DC is much older than Marvel is. Not for nothing has DC had all these reboots over the years. And by the way, not for nothing does Marvel, Marvel's bringing back the Ultimate Universe. Right. Um, because the whole appeal of the Ultimate Universe is, you know, for those readers who either don't want to or haven't learned, you know, 60 years of continuity, there's here's yep. Spider-Man for you, unencumbered. Here's Fantastic Four for you, unencumbered. And I think, you know, look, my my guess is what they are building up to with Phase Four is the Secret Wars that they've announced. It's not the Secret Wars of the 1980s. It's Jonathan Hickman's Secret Wars, which dealt with, uh, which basically was sort of like a reset for the Marvel Universe. Mm -hmm. So I think they're gonna if if, if they do what I expect them to do, they will end up pruning the tree, as I said. Is, is this uh, the one with the, uh, the the incursions from multiple universes? Uh, yes. Uh, yes, yes. Yeah. Wow. Okay, we're going yeah. deeper. Okay. Wait, uh, one last question before I let you go, right? Let's say if, um, if, if one of the themes of this conversation has been like, you know, these 
how elements in the comic book, which were so stretched, like even multiple characters, now are commonplace. Now we're in multiple timelines and crisis is probably going to show up. What, if you if you could wave a magic wand over the next four or five years and you want to pick elements which are there in comic books but unexplored on TV or on movie screens, what would you want to see? Ooh, I like this question. Oh. Ooh, that's a great question. Um, that's a really great question. Um, well, it's my speaking of the question, I, I've always felt the question would make for a great, uh, that's a DC character, uh, a great, great uh, TV show. I'm a real fan of the Marvel of Benjamin Cullen Night Force uh, comic of the 1980s. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's horror with like a team element, but it's non-team. Again, these, some of these are sort of deep cuts. Um, I, I still am waiting for my pure Superman movie. Kind of, kind of really hungering for that. What is a construct that is seen in the comics? Like, for example, oh, multiverses. Yeah. You know, for example, when they show like Earth six six six, you know, six one six, etc. Like, that's a concept. What is a construct that is acceptable in comics that hasn't been explored on screen yet? Because it does seem like you know we get all these things. For example, the multiple universes. Uh, I think the reboots now. Uh, we haven't seen the exact Crisis version yet, so that might be a thing. Uh, though I think the TV had a version of that. Uh, where we kind of prune the tree. I think we don't have these one shots now where you have like, oh, this, the Joker is, Orkin Phoenix lives his own thing and it's kind of like, you know, having somebody do, oh. celebrate do a one shot. So all these kind of variations now you, you're seeing. And I wonder whether there is still more to be mined, uh, storytelling mechanisms in the comic yeah. world which can be pulled over. This is not a mechanism, but, but I'll tell you what I really want, mm-hmm. like desperately. In 10 years, I want The Dark Knight Returns with Michael Keaton. What? Okay. I want, I want them to adapt. The Dark Knight Returns is the seminal 1986 yeah. uh, Batman story by Frank Miller, yes. where Batman is in his 70s or 80s, and he comes out of retirement for, you know, and, and like little moments have been cherry-picked by Batman versus Superman and, and cherry-picked by even Dark Knight Rises. Um, but that actual story... Mm. Um, it's it's a remarkable classic story, and I, I always thought like Clint Eastwood would be like the perfect old Bruce Wayne. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I think Clint Eastwood is a little too old. Michael Keaton's not quite there yet, but when Michael Keaton's old enough, Michael Keaton coming back to you know be Bruce Wayne again, but coming out of retirement and oh, I like uh, that. I would, that could work. That's a, that's iconic. I don't know that. Yeah, that's like iconic. It. Uh, it would be spectacular. I, I like, you, you, but like, and you get like a really great, like, not Darren Aronofsky, but someone kind of, or like David Fincher. David Fincher doing that movie would be, that'd be, that'd be the old. Oh, oh my goodness. Very cool. Yeah, oh, wow. Okay. Mark, I can't think of more fun note to end on. I just want to say, this has been such a blast. It was so fun. We never can. <laughs> yeah, it's fun for me too. So, uh, thank oh my you. God. Well, so you should come back and do this. And we should, you know, every six months, so we should kind of review everything on TV and we should like. I mean, a- honestly, we would love to just like, do reviews of shows and maybe just like watch it and critique oh, yeah. as we watch. I think that'll be oh, really fun. fun. Yeah. yeah. Oh my goodness. Yeah. I think you guys should, should like, yeah, make it like a, make it like a regular reaction uh, thing. Yeah. There we go. Yeah. I'm going to give you a good. But Mark, you're so amazing. Love your work. Okay. Let, give us some plugs. Right? Do people want to find your work? What should they buy? What should they watch? Thank you. The thing I tend to plug the most because it sort of feeds into everything else is I have a pretty regular newsletter. I publish it every Friday, most every Friday called Legal Dispatch on Substack. Okay. Uh, and it's markguggenheim.substack.com. And I talk about what I'm working on. I talk about what's coming up and uh, I talk about process. Sometimes I'll talk about the strike lately. Um, I'll talk about things I've 
you know, read or watched and, and really enjoyed. It's it's a little bit of like a, a little weekly diary, basically. Mm-hmm. I've got right now, uh, I've got two comic books that are, are currently sort of running right now. Uh, one is X-Men Days of Future Past, uh, Doomsday by Marvel. Issue one just came out uh, yesterday. And uh, I also have a five-issue Star Trek miniseries called Star Trek The Motion Picture Echoes. Uh, it takes place right after the motion picture, and it's it's five issues. Issue three dropped uh, yesterday on Wednesday, uh, the twelfth as well. Awesome. Uh, amazing. Okay, we're going to have links to all of that below. But Mark, this was such a blast. You know, I had uh, fun. Uh, thank you so so much. This is so amazing. Thanks, Mark. Thank you. Thanks so much for making time for us. Uh,